I'm glad that all of you are here. Delighted that you're here in person. Those of you who are with us online, those of you who are watching or listening later, we all bring concerns with us when we gather as a group. And some of us voice those concerns and some of us can't. So we're going to pray before we start in order to honor our God and to release those concerns to him. God, you who are listening, you who are close at all times, we submit and yield to you in your power and your glory. We trust that you are doing things we cannot see, that you are working in ways we do not understand. We ask for the things that we have uh, spoken, the things that we have left unspoken, God, that you might answer us, that you might be merciful, that you might extend love and joy, and that there might be hope in our hearts. Be with us now as we seek to understand your word. We're grateful for your presence among us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There are two books in the whole Bible that are written specifically about women. Both of them are narratives telling a specific story. Both of them are related to questions of religious and cultural and ethnic identity. Both of them are about God's influence in the background. And for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about Esther's story. Esther's story is written a bit like an opera or maybe a well-written comedic play. There are interesting characters, obvious plot points, clear foreshadowing for those of us watching from above, and a really beautiful structure from start to finish, very nice and neat and even It also has the distinction of being the only book in our Bible that does not have an explicit mention of God. However, as we read the story, you will notice that it is obvious to those of us reading it now that God's hand is in the story of Esther. So the book begins, before we get to our text, in the kingdom of Persia, with King Ahasuerus throwing a huge party in the capital city of Susa where after six months of drinking and partying and breaking a few royal vases, I'm sure, he has decided to call for his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and sort of proclaim her beauty before the gathered crowd. Queen Vashti uh, has been throwing a party for the women of the palace in a different section for the last six months, and she's decided she's not overly interested in being trotted out like a prized pig at an auction. So she refuses. She refuses the king. The king is, of course, uh, embarrassed and enraged, as people who are drunk for six months tend to be, and demands that she is immediately removed as queen. And then in, in the process, he also gathers some of his buddies, and they write down a new law of the land to be sent out to all the provinces, that all of the wives are to treat their husbands like their masters. Go figure. So we find ourselves in chapter two, where our main character finally comes on the scene. After the removal of one queen, the king has decided to find a new and better model. In the intervening time, there's been a war and he's lost very badly. So maybe this is supposed to soothe his bruised ego a little bit. So he calls for, or perhaps hastens and instructs any eligible, in this case, unmarried virgin women, to come for a beauty competition. 
So we're going to read from Esther chapter 2, 5 through 11, and then 15 through 18. Now there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shemi, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with King Jeconiah of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. He had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was fair and beautiful, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel of Susa, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. The young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetic treatments and her portion of food and with seven chosen maids from the king's palace, and he advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. Every day, Mordecai would walk back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. When the turn came for Esther, daughter of Abihail, uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter, to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was admired by all who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Of all the virgins, she won his favor and devotion, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet to all his officials and ministers, Esther's banquet. He also granted a holiday to the provinces and gave gifts with royal liberality. So if we want to imagine this scene, we might find ourselves sitting on a bench in the courtyard of the royal harem, in the palace of the king in the capital city. We overhear the women who have been brought in for this event discussing the process for beautifying themselves that they might catch the eye of the king. This is a royalty marries a commoner sort of storyline, right? With any beautiful unmarried women in the entire kingdom invited to participate. Some historical accounts will give a, a number to how many were gathered based on the size of the empire, the size of the harem, the king's own interest to the people. Josephus, an ancient historian, says that 400 women were gathered, but really it's hard for us to know for sure. But what we do know is that this is no small town, junior miss, country fair sort of pageant. This is as if um, the Miss Universe pageant came with a title and all the money that Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos have together. This is a year-long process of preparation before the time when they would even interact with the king. The women might be gathered around our bench in small groups as the conditioner sets in their hair and their nail polish dries. You know, when the king of such a large nation decrees that beautiful, eligible virgin women are to be gathered up, then they are gathered. 
There are not any questions asked of the women. There's not like an opinion sheet. Do you want to try this out? Yes, no, maybe. These women were gathered not by their own choice. Now, they might have been excited. They might have been terrified, but they certainly had no capacity to make that decision for themselves. But each of them also had choices within that context. Even when we are powerless to a larger circumstance, we make decisions that allow us to feel empowered within that situation. So Esther, like all the rest, was brought in, whether she wanted to be or not. And it's impossible for us to know how many of these women found this to be an exciting possibility. They wanted to be welcomed into the harem of the king. They liked the luxuries that came with that. It could have been most of them, and it could have been none. But what is worth noticing is the way that Esther displays her power in the circumstance she finds herself in. In the text, it says that Esther, in the Hebrew, gains kindness from the eunuch Haggai. Gains kindness. Kind of an odd phrase in English. And even in the Hebrew, it's odd, because usually you would fear that someone finds kindness. They find it. But Esther gains it. It's a much more dynamic and active word. She is doing enough to get kindness from Haggai. This is unique and tells us about her own compassion and her own wisdom. She knows power when she sees it. And she is engaging enough herself to win over this important official in the harem. And so Haggai, because of this connection, ensures that she gets early beauty treatments. She doesn't have to get up super early and wait in line. She's always got the first slot. She's got the best maids, the ones who are most functional, but, you know, not really terribly boring. She gets the best room in the harem. She's set up for success in her context. Esther might have found herself here without intending to, but she was going to use the situation to bring herself the best chance to thrive to increase her own influence, to set herself above the others that were gathered with her. She was present in the harem by force, by necessity, but she advantaged herself and increased her chance for success through her own ambition. So every day if we sit on the same stone bench and watch the women gather and crowd and wait to be treated with masks and such, we might see a familiar robe Outside the gate, the same time every day, it's Mordecai, Esther's uncle, who every day comes and checks in with her. And they sit and they talk through the gate and the fence. We remember that Esther is Mordecai's niece, or maybe his cousin. The familial words in the ancient languages are not always clear. But she is brought into his household. She is legally a part of his family. And they seem to live in Persia, probably in the capital, because He's close enough, he can come and visit every day and check on her. This story is happening after some had already returned to Israel to begin the rebuilding process. So the Israelites had been sent out into exile, which it tells us at the first part of our reading, and now some had already begun to rebuild their ancestral homeland. But Mordecai and his family had decided to stay. This was not terribly unusual, and there were likely a lot of reasons for that decision, perhaps most centrally, that Israel, having been abandoned for many years, was sort of a backwards sort of place. And if you were accustomed to the luxuries of the capital of the empire, you weren't really looking 
to go live out in Israel. And if their families had been in Persia for a while, which they had, then they would have established businesses, made connections, built homes. It was comfortable and stable for them to stay put. And so they did. And the scheming and planning that Mordecai and Esther do is described a little bit in the text. The first being that we're told twice that Esther is not sharing her identity as an Israelite, as a Hebrew, as a Jew. Mordecai says, keep it on lock, and she does. And he also encourages her as she connects more with Haggai, with this official who is in charge, this eunuch in charge of the harem. Maybe they both have a good mind for strategy, Mordecai and Esther. Maybe they think this is their best way to the top. Certainly, it would be a good thing if you were a foreigner in a foreign land to be connected to the highest official and the most important element of the king's palace who might allow you the opportunity to have access to the king. So they plan, and Esther is not threatened by anyone knowing her religious identity, her cultural identity, her ethnic heritage, because they keep it quiet. They hide it. And so she uses advisors and trusted people within her context to continue to set herself up for success. They take their context and they use it for their ambition and to their advantage. So then, as we're sitting, listening, the wind blowing through the beautiful myrtle trees, we hear the whispers start. Maybe in one corner, and then someone's losing their temper over in another section. It seems the king has chosen a queen. And it's Esther. In some ways, it's not surprising. The text tells us that everyone who saw her was drawn in by her. They are intrigued. She is enchanting and she is interesting. And so she wins the favor of the king and he puts the crown on her and he makes her the new queen of the largest empire on earth. She's young. She's new, she's beautiful, she's kind, and the king takes this opportunity to do what he loves to do the most. He throws another party. This one he names after his new beloved, right, Esther's banquet, and he throws it just as he did the last for all the officials in the palace and in the surrounding vicinities, and then he sends out to all of the provinces, that's a lot of male folks, that there's a holiday for Esther's banquet. And so this rejoicing goes on. And in fact, it describes his gift giving during this time of celebration as giving with a royal liberality, the kind of generosity, the kind of gift giving that only a king could dream of. Everybody else would bankrupt, but not the king. So the fruit of their labor, staying in Persia, using the circumstances to their advantage, building friendships and allies within the palace, consenting to months of royal treatment. All of it comes to a bountiful harvest. Now Esther has a position of safety, of wealth, of power, of influence. Her new context will help her family, their connections, their social status, their stability in their community. Esther's story demonstrates the ways that she and Mordecai sought power for their own gain, their assimilation into the local culture, both good and bad. And it also tells us their seeming disinterest in keeping up their own religious 
requirements. Because as the Persians party in excess, so also do they. As the Persians intermarry, so do they. As the Persians seek power, so do they. As captured people stay in Persia because it's more comfortable than dealing with the challenges of their homeland, so do they. As the women in the empire seek influence over the king for their own gain, so do they. These two characters in our story are not identified as sort of true believers, right? Not morally strong, not righteous examples of action. Instead, they are offered up as very human people, morally ambiguous or morally weak. They are flawed in their actions. They make concessions to their culture. They don't commit themselves to their faith. So what we learn from them in this part of Esther's story is that we are also invited to reflect on our lives, our histories, and to think on the times we acted in our own ambition, when we allowed our personal desires to run the show, when we chose ourselves over everything else. These are times in our history we often try to forget, to hide, to ignore. But Esther's story extends to us an invitation to look honestly at the times we chose selfishness, we sought power, we ignored our religious convictions, we picked the easy path for comfort, we desired wealth, we lived in excess. And as we examine ourselves and look at those times, Esther's story tells us that God was present for every moment of it. God does not only clear the path when we act righteously. God does not love us more when we are living as we know we should. God instead remains present with us, close at hand, in our right decisions and in our wrong ones. This portion of Esther's story tells us that we don't have to look at our past in shame or in hatred of self, but rather with hope, confident that God was present for each moment in every scenario, even when we thought we had chased God away by our actions and our flaws and our sins and our selfishness. This is not attempting to turn glasses of holiness on our past and make every wrong action into a right one. This is about acknowledging honestly that the truth of God's presence in proximity is found in good and in flawed people, of which we are both. As we look at our lives, at our good and our bad, we are invited to look for the God who never leaves us alone. You've been listening to me, Pastor Kana Moore, at Hayes Christian Church. Hayes Christian Church is a non-denominational fellowship in Hayes, Kansas. We are supported by the generosity of our members, attenders, and friends. The financial support we raise goes to projects which further spread the gospel to those who do not yet know Jesus, to those local 
national and international missions, and they help keep these podcasts free. If you would like to share a monetary gift with us, please visit our website at hayeschristianchurch.org and click on the donate button, or you may mail your gift to P.O. Box 1111, Hayes, Kansas, 67601. If you have any questions, comments, or would like more information, we would love to hear from you. Simply go to our website and click on the Contact Us form. Thank you for your generosity, and may God bless you as you seek to follow Him.